Napa know-how. It takes a lot to get excited about a bag, but most bags can't save you 20% on auto parts. That's 20% off headlamps, 20% off oil filters, 20% off virtually anything you can fit inside the 99-cent Napa reusable bag. So tell your buddies, there's a bag they just have to check out. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores while supplies last. Minimum three items. Exclusions apply. Offer ends 10-31-17. Welcome inside the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. John Ledyard here with you guys today. It is a Wednesday morning. It is beautiful out. I'm sure in Florida as it is in Pennsylvania. And we've got a great special guest. Dan Hatman, director of the Scouting Academy, um, is with us today. He's worked for the Eagles, the Jets, and the Giants uh, inside those front offices and got to see some of the inner workings behind the scenes, Dan. So we, Trevor and I are, are dying with curiosity, as I'm sure the fan base is as well, um, to just hear about the, pro, the, the process behind a, a team's perspective during this, this I mean, the draft is has become a, a huge debacle, obviously, to fans, and uh, the interest level's at an all-time high. But from from seeing it, how a fan or a, an analyst sees it to how a team sees it, we're really excited to talk with you about what that process looks like for a team today. But first, how are you? I know you haven't been able to get much sleep because the little one's been keeping you up. <laughs> I, I have not had much luck. My son has been a bit of a, a tear in the sleep department, but we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Awesome. Awesome. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time. I want to start really with the beginning of this pre-draft process, um, you know, rewinding to, to January, you know, what we call the pre-draft process. It may not be that way for teams, but where's an NFL team at in, in their scouting process at that point? Maybe, uh, you know, how narrow down is that board, their target players, um, you know, heading into the senior bowl, things like that. Is that a very early part of the process or do they have a good idea already of what their focus should be heading into the draft? So you start, you know, what we affectionately refer to as the pre-draft process from a public perspective with your December meetings. So the college football season has closed your area scouts, your national cross checkers, your college director, the people that have been boots on the ground at these college campuses throughout the fall and collecting this information, sit down with um, you know, the executives and the rest of the staff that are a part of that process, and you start compiling the grades that you currently have from the players. Some of these guys will have as many as three or if not four grades uh, by that point in time. And not only are you staging the, you know, again, the early grades, the early board, so to speak, but a lot of it's prioritizing what we've learned about them from a character perspective. A lot of those December meetings are fleshing out, hey, here are the X number of players in my area that I have serious concerns over based on what I've uncovered. Uh, we're going to want to study them in the process. Now, depending on how much information that you've uh, you've gained, some players you know, basically might be removed from serious consideration that early. You may still investigate uh, what those incidents are and if it proves later on that they're not uh, quite as severe as you had initially anticipated, maybe they get back into consideration. But a lot of that's just staging, okay, we're about to go into a phase where we can explore character, we can explore medical, uh, we can do all these things. What are the big question marks, non-film related, that we have going into this point? And that leads you into uh, both the bowl games, but more importantly, the all-star games. And again, uh, and it's less about the actual game performance. And sometimes 
not necessarily just about practice, although the practices of those those games um, are a great opportunity. But it's it's more about again having an opportunity to actually talk to some of the players. Mm-hmm. That's the first time you get in that interview cycle where you're speaking with them, trying to extract more information, poking around at any issues that occur. And again, that that I can't emphasize enough. A lot of the film work from uh, the bulk of your staff has been completed by the time you hit January. Your executive level, the final decision makers, mm-hmm. a lot of them are getting into the heavy lifting of their film work because the fall is the, the season. They have other jobs to do in the building, uh, especially your coaching staff. But, you know, that that piece is now we're getting to meet them as human beings. And that fit is really what starts to shape these things. And so we talk about, I hear a lot these days about draft stock and up and down and what have you. The film work is the film work. That's long since been determined by, again, the bulk of your um, your staff. But if your executives have not had a chance to study a player in depth and were previously relying on somebody else's evaluation and they finally had a chance to really work the film, then that player's grade's going to change, potentially. You know, if they had a chance to sit down with that player and he was really impressive, that could change a grade. Mm-hmm. They sit down with the player and he was really disrespectful. And your position coach and your coordinator come away going, I want nothing to do with that individual. That could change part of the process. And so, um, yes, players' stock changes in this process, but it has n- very little to do with film unless, and again, the executive tier has not been able to study that player and finally gets eyes on. Have you had an experience like that where you know there was a player – that you had to talk to or something like that and immediately was a big turnoff and, and you immediately flagged something from a meeting like that? Um, I definitely came away. I didn't have any players be specifically disrespectful. They're very well coached by their agents and advisors, sure. most most of them, uh, and at least had to engage in the basic interactions that we go through. I did have players that as you went through that the different questions with them, whether they be questions about football or questions about life, um, seemed very canned in terms of those answers. And they, you know, they'd been coached to say X, Y, or Z, and they were basically just reading off of a list of previously established things, which I didn't, I personally did not like as much. And I also had players that you'd ask the questions to, and if you had a, a decent follow up to it and got them off script, they just, they had nothing left to say of, of intelligence and you really came away going, wow, I don't know if this guy can tie his shoelaces mm-hmm. together. <laughs> and the, But at the same time, all of that then has to be filtered through. We as human beings, we always like to acquire those that remind us ourselves. Mm. So you don't want to get into a situation, at least from what I would recommend, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're only taking people that you think are like you or remind you of yourself. Mm-hmm. You're going to miss on players in that process. You know, if a guy comes away and he's not the most articulate speaker for whatever reason, that does not mean he's not an intelligent individual in some capacity or that he's not intelligent as it pertains to the football field and dedicated to his craft. And so just, you know, as an individual red flag should mean continued study, not necessarily, a, oh, well, I want nothing to do with this guy. But we, I do have um, other people that have sat in, in meetings, particularly those 15-minute ones at the Combine, mm-hmm. just the nature of them. These guys are worn out, and I've definitely heard of players basically coming in that you know don't expect to or want to play for your team um, and might just basically throw in the towel on the meeting um, and, and just not come away very impressive. 
I heard uh, an, an infamous example, I think, of Deion Sanders. who did this, walked in the room with the New York Giants. They threw him a, a book, and it was this huge, like, testing book, like an IQ or a personality test. And he's like, what is this? And the Giants were like, oh, this is what we have all our prospects do. And he went, what pick are you picking? And they said, 10. He's like, I won't be there. And they just <laughs> walked out. <laughs> so, I don't know. That's a story I heard. Don't know if it's true. I really hope it is. But um, I'm glad you mentioned the draft stock thing. But I guess – Building off of that, we hear a lot about teams having thresholds for height, weight, speed, you know, these, a lot of these number testing things about these guys. And we know that the film is king, but does it vary or how important are those thresholds and those measurements for people? It depends a bit on the position in the team. You know, unfortunately, most answers it relates to the NFL, there's a, you know, there's some variability in, in how they leverage it. I did work for some teams where at certain positions, the heights and weights and, you know, frame measurements. So your lengths, your wingspans, what have you were very important. They just felt that big people beat up on little people. And so that was critical and they would not be as open to an outlier that were underneath those measurables. Um, I also worked for organizations that would study where, you know, the baselines of measurables stood for different organ, you know, different players at different positions throughout the league and would prioritize those that were big but were open to someone that was either uh, small in terms of height or weight, but they would need to have excellent grades in other areas. So if you were, you know, um, marginal in terms of your height or weight at a position, you could not simply be solid in terms of your football ability and be on their radar, you would need to be in the upper echelons of that grading scale to be considered as, um, as a player for them because, and I I agree with the philosophy of you don't want to build a team of outliers, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and again, big people usually do beat up on little people. So you want the bulk of your roster when available to be big, strong, fast, smart, tough, competitive, you know, so forth and so on. Um, obviously we all see players on an individual basis that don't match all of those. Um, you know, but I don't want an entire defensive line of six, two, 230 pound pass rushers, but they're all really good players. Well, yeah, but I, I, I mm. put them out there and I'm going to get demolished. Yeah. So maybe having one of those on my roster is okay. But when I start to turn that into three of those, it becomes a different argument. So, you know, and that's going to, I'll pause there cause I'll end up going down the path of, um, need versus best player available and all that stuff, but we don't need to get into that just yet. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about this process from a team's perspective, but as we approach as they approach the combine um, in that area of, of the pre-draft process, like you said, as we affectionately call it, um, do teams basically have their boards set at that point? Um, and is it you know, have the meetings taken place basically to narrow down a certain number of players that a team will focus on when the draft rolls around? And if so, how big a board are we talking about in this regard for, for most teams or for in your experience? I know it varies some from team to team. Oh, it absolutely does. I, I think over the last handful of years, teams have been making a conscious effort to continue to decrease the size of their board and really focus in on the players that they would like to work with. Um, you know, I remember boards that were pushing closer to 200 players in my experience. Mm-hmm. And those were, I wouldn't say unmanageable because you, you put in the work, but there was just, 
there was a lot of options there. So you'd end up with many players that had similar grades. So you'd be sitting there in a situation and it wasn't necessarily clear cut. There's one guy left. He's two tiers above everybody else on the board. He's a no brainer to go get. You ended up with, Hey, I've got three players at three different positions with the same grade. What do I want to do now type situations? And so in talking to people, it seems like we're getting more teams are getting closer to about 125. Um, And depending on the year, you may or may not get there. But again, it's, you know, you're filtering through film, you're filtering through character and medical, and you're continuing. You, you got to find reasons to say no. Right. You know, and I know a lot of us on uh, the outside perspective seem frustrated with, you know, why isn't this person getting more and more attention? As a team, you're going through a thousand prospects in mm-hmm. the course of the year, top to bottom, as best you can. And you know, only 253 are getting drafted, and at best, teams are getting their hands on. I mean, what did Cleveland have last year? 13. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's on the yeah. real, the really high end of things. So, I mean, most teams are ending up with somewhere between eight, maybe 10 mm-hmm. on a good day of those players. So, you have to find reasons to say no. I don't want this guy, or no, I you know I like him, but he's not as valuable as X, Y, or Z player. Um, so again, paring it down to that 125. Um, you'll still end up with players available to you, you know, in the seventh round. Because once you get past maybe in a given year the top 50, and even inside that 50, you know, finding consensus is incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. Once you move past the top 50, the players are no longer, um, you know, scheme agnostic where they can just go anywhere and be effective. A lot of those guys turn into players where there are specific organizations that are better fits. So even after a board of 125 or so has been established by a team, you're saying that there, there still is a, is a decent chance that there's going to be a player among those 125 that's available in the six or seven, you know, that 250 to 253 range on the board. Yeah. Cause I mean, to get to 125, you're, you're really focusing on, players that you have probably fifth round and above Mm -hmm. grades on Mm -hmm. and what you'll have for most organizations is a sideboard because it's as soon as you're done with your picks whether that be the last pick of the draft or it's your last pick in the sixth round or whatever that is as soon as you're done picking you're moving on to undrafted free agency Mm -hmm. which is recruiting it's like going back to college coaching and here's a pool of players and which ones can you get you got seventy five thousand dollars in guaranteed signing bonus money to distribute. Do you want to give it all to one? Do you want to split it over 10 people? How do you want to play the game? Um, so you're you're going to have a sideboard of guys that you're focusing on there. You're not you're not only taking from 125 and then we don't nobody else is even in the room, but from the the guys that we want to draft, we're focusing on those I say we. Teams are focusing on those that they want to work with and think have that kind of upside to make their 46 man roster. You know, teams, from what I'm hearing, are not focusing on guys that we think might set on our practice squad for three years and then maybe have a chance to be good in year four. You only dress in 46 on game day. So, I mean, how many guys are we seriously considering in a draft class? They're going to crack our 46. So when you focus it that way, it allows you to really um, narrow that down. And then again, you have the secondary sideboard of here's all the other players that we like for X, Y, and Z reason. That we, you know, we feel will be available to us an undrafted free agency, and we can target and move within that group in a recruiting standpoint as needed. 
All right, last question for me, man. I, I just got to ask you, what is that? What's a war room like? I mean, we see, you know, the dramatized movies and everything, but is it like, you, you know, it's like a Wolf of Wall Street setting where people are just, you know, freaking <laughs> out, yelling at each other, you know, the sweat pouring everywhere, or is it like a lot more, a lot more calm than that? Do teams really kind of know what's going on at that point? From the ones I experienced, it was relatively calm. A lot of the work had been done ahead of time. The draft Man, that's meetings... no fun. That's no fun. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'd say the draft meetings are, um, are really where I think a lot more of that drama comes in. When you have arguably five or six different people, not including maybe your psychologists or your doctors... Uh, so coaches, scouts, executives, what have you, that have all watched the player. And you, if you have guys on different sides um, of the evaluation scale of that player, you know, hey, we got these two guys that think he could be a, you know, a second-round pick and these three guys think he's a fourth-round pick or a fifth-round pick or whatever the number is, and you got to come down to one grade. And this is the piece that, you know, when all of us sit on the outside and we watch a guy or we build our board, it's one person deciding mm-hmm. what each player's value is. That's fine. And it, it's a it's a beautiful craft, and I appreciate anybody that puts the work in to do that. But to build a team board, it's not one person's thing. Mm-hmm. If a GM truly did that, he doesn't need a scouting staff other than to gather background information. Like, you, I mean, you're they're trying to empower these people to help them – evaluate and value these players and so when a, you know one of your guys comes back and says hey i think he's a second rounder another one of your guys comes back and says hey i think he's a fourth rounder you as a gm have to figure out where do you go and so that's where it gets contentious that's where a lot more of the arguments and the fights and the pounding of the table and you know let's just go to the film or having a philosophical conversation of how how risky do I think this guy's off field is, or do we trust the doctor saying that I only think he can make it through one contract, and so this is not a second contract type player, or whatever information might be catch you know catching you up in the process, but hopefully you've massaged as much as humanly possible of that before draft day, because draft day is so uncertain in terms of how the board's going to fall to you. The last thing you want to be doing is deciding which player you like. That work should have been done a long time ago. This is interesting because I, when you talk about those meetings and, and talking about off the field and evaluating off the field, it makes me think about certain player situations over the years. We've heard that you know teams sent I, I forget what team it was, but sent someone to basically spy on Justin Blackman at a bar in college to see if he if he visited too often, and and he did, and so they took him off their board. And we hear things like that. Is that common practice among teams to to really? vet maybe especially first rounders but to really vet most of the you know say it's 125 players on your board most of those 125 players that seriously or do they kind of just talk to people get a feel for who they need to go more in depth on or what's the process like in discovering the background information slash off the field history with a lot of these guys your area scout is responsible for the background of every player in his area so if this guy has an issue and you didn't flag it in the process, that's on you. So uh, the recent example um, that comes to mind for me is uh, Amonti Ball just wrote uh, or um, at least was interviewed for an excellent piece recently talking about how alcoholism basically shut down his NFL career. Mm. And I I wasn't the area scout of the Midwest, but I don't remember hearing a lot about that in the pre-draft process. doesn't mean it wasn't known. But I just it hadn't been um, personally brought to my attention, mm-hmm. you know, in going through that. So 
in a case like that, yeah, I mean, you were, if you're the area guy, you were responsible for knowing that Monty Ball has an alcohol problem. And your GM better know that before you take the guy. And you might still decide we can put together a plan to work with him and take care of him. We might, you know, help him get housing, have somebody live with him, get him a sponsor. What you I mean, again, these are human beings taking care of human beings. So the risk aversion is just absolutely, you know, different across the board in terms of how you want to deal with that. But yeah, you're responsible for knowing that information or being able to dig on it. So if you get done with a prospect and he's clean, you just can't mm-hmm. you can't find anybody that's got a flag to raise anywhere. You've done the interviews, you've done the stuff. Well, there's you know, most people will stop digging at that point. But if you get some guy that throws up one flag and then you keep studying and then you find the next flag and then you keep studying and you find the next flag. Um, yeah, you'll keep digging until you're done. You might go back and be talking to the guy's seventh grade English teacher. You know, whatever it takes for you to get to a point where your decision makers are comfortable knowing, yes, this guy stays on my board um, and I'm not that worried about it. Yes, this guy stays on my board and I need to have a plan to how to take care of him or no, this guy's not on my board. Like the GM has to get to that point mm-hmm. and you're going to do whatever it takes to get to there. I remember when the Bucks were going through everything with Jameis Winston, I think somebody told me that they went back and talked to, I think, like the janitor at his high school or something, you know, just to see like, hey, what is this guy like? when no one else is around, you know, mm-hmm. when like cameras or reporters or NFL in an environment like that. So yeah, I guess uh, that and the just Blackman thing, man, you know, teams go, the good teams go pretty deep on these guys that they're spending draft picks on. So it's strange stuff because essentially these, um, these prospect evaluators, these area scouts turn into private investigators mm-hmm. at some point. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. amateur psychologists, they're amateur investigators. Oh, and by the way, you better get the film eval right. <laughs> a lot on their plates and it sounds like a high pressure it's, job <laughs> it is an, if you if you really got a chance to ever sit down with one and unpack all of the description that they have for the compensation that they do for the hours that they put in for how little impact their grades actually have sometimes in yeah. the final decision maker um it is a thankless job mm-hmm. it's an absolutely thankless job let's talk about the the last question I really have for you is talking about the pro day workouts and, and what goes into these in terms of what a team, how a team values them. We, we talk every year about, you know, especially for quarterbacks, I feel like, uh, you know, pro day workouts is meaningless. If you get, if you like the guy is whatever, he stays high. If he threw well, you know what you just kind of use it to support your, your already biased thoughts. But for teams, I'm sure that's completely different. I mean, is it, is it only valuable for guys that you haven't seen testing numbers for guys that didn't test at the combine? Um, and do teams tend to detract from the value of pro day numbers at all? Because they're usually a little bit better than the combine. So, the the pro day testing so anything for the same drills that they would do at the combine from um, speed and agility and what have you yes the pro day for for some of the organizations i was with was really only a factor if um the player was unable to test in indy for whatever reason um or chose not to test in indy for whatever reason you you wanted some verified measurables mm-hmm. on the player. Uh, but I definitely was with organizations that once the combine numbers were in, that was the number they were going with. Cause it's stable for every prospect. You know, the, the pro days, this is not a controlled atmosphere mm-hmm. from the standpoint of, if you have a, a program that has unbelievable facilities, you might have a great air conditioned, temperature regulated, proper humidity, indoor track with a fast turf, 
up to and including being outside in the wind and the rain. Right. And the people that are timing, it's not no longer consistent. So again, not every team has a representative at every pro day. There's some arrangements and some ways that they distribute that to help each other in those ways. Um, and that's where the, the combines manifest and the blestos again, it provide additional value. Um, and so, you know, I might have somebody from another team that's not in my employee sending me the numbers on a pro day prospect. Do I trust that over what I just timed him at personally at the combine? Right. Um, So uh, there's, uh, there's a huge argument to be made that the pro day is not from a measurement standpoint, it's not as relevant and that you should have already captured that stuff. If they were a combine invite and participated um, I'm open to people debating that and I'd be interested to see where people are at, you know, Hey, I just want his best time or what have you. Ultimately I get the measurable part of it in trying to reduce risk and the guys that are better athletes that are also good players are your best shot. That makes sense. Um, but at some point, you know, finding out that a guy is, you know, one tenth better or, you know, hundreds of a second better or whatever the case may be. Um, I just, I find that to be a marginal addition to the process from an information standpoint, because mm-hmm. there's so much other stuff that we've already collected about who they are and what they can do. So it seems to be kind of like a, a way too much time being put into that one phase of it. Now, the other half of those things is the opportunity to work them out and do other things. So again, as you're going through this process, you're going to come into situations where the film left questions. I, I, I argue this to anybody. Good film eval will generate answers, but it will also generate good questions. And as such, you know, you're going to have situations where, again, you want to, I want to project Hassan Reddick to be a stack backer. I want to project Solomon Thomas to be an edge rusher. Well, then I want to send my linebacker coach or my defensive coordinator, or my defensive line coach or whatever you know variation thereof. I want to send those individuals to go work out this player at that position, put them through drills like we would do in practice and get their insight into how that player hmm. looks in those situations. And you can do that at pro days, depending on, you know, the, again, the nature of the pro day. Uh, and certainly the private workouts and things of that nature. So there's absolutely information to be gleaned. I, I do take a little bit with a grain of salt the the scripted, pre-packaged uh, quarterback, you know, mm-hmm. piece. Right. Uh, again, there. I heard this this year, and it really just struck a chord with me. So much, especially at the combine. This this was told me at the combine. The only thing authentic is the medical, because everything else they're preparing these kids for. You know, former GMs and executives are hired by agencies and training centers to prepare them for interviews, prepare them how to dress, how to walk, how to look, what was I studying. I mean, these kids are told every little thing that GMs are looking for because they're hiring former GMs to do it. So they're prepared for all this stuff, thinking that you're, oh, I, you know, I found out new information that's, you know, authentic and, and, and predictive and what have you. I think you're lying to yourself a little bit. It's all information. It all can be considered, but how much you're weighing it, you know, I, I don't think you should let these things drastically pull you in a different direction. Right. Now, again, if you got done with the film and you had a serious question, I don't know about X, and then we go work them out and it doesn't look good, okay, fine. That mm-hmm. makes sense. Then let's, you know, let's continue to drill on that and or just mark them down. But if you didn't have a question on film, 
for example, Leonard Fournette didn't jump a vertical like you'd want him to. Well, did anybody question his explosiveness on film? Mm-hmm. In terms of how he bursts through a hole, right. how he engages in terms of foot speed in the open field, in terms of explosiveness of, of um, how he makes contact with a defender. I didn't remember anybody saying I had a question on that. Mm-hmm. So why do we all of a sudden have a question because he didn't jump like you wanted him to jump? Right. If, don't if create don't create problems you, where there aren't any, basically. Yeah, and if you watch the film and he didn't have explosive traits and then he goes out and doesn't test to show explosive traits, well fine then. Okay. Right. But why are we making our own issues just for the sake of infusing new data into the process? Yeah. That's terrific stuff. Dan Hatman, director of the Scouting Academy, preparing the the next young minds to to step in and be able to um, you know articulate this kind of stuff and away from their own experiences someday. You know, preparing them to be able to step into NFL front offices and scouting roles if they so desire. And uh, really appreciate you taking the time, Dan. Um, uh, as always, great to hear from behind the scenes uh, an in depth uh, team's perspective. But I know you're always constantly busy as well, not only with the family but with work as well. So we just really appreciate you taking the time to to be with us today well thanks for having me guys absolutely you can follow him on twitter at yeah thanks dan Dan underscore hatman Uh, make sure you give him a follow always great stuff coming from that account always uh very insightful uh knowledge from behind the scenes that that is much appreciated uh perspective that i think we can really take away and in and learn from it in the pre-draft process and attempting to make our own process better as well so we'll be back tomorrow with more nfl draft talk trevor and i will be bringing it hot we've got uh some some great stuff lined up for the end of the week to close out in a bang and then we're into draft week man and then we got this little weekend lull and then we're back hitting it hard next week uh talking some more drafts so always thank you so much for listening and as always keep it locked right here on locked on nfl draft it takes a lot to get excited about a bag but most bags can't save you 20 percent on auto parts that's 20 percent off headlamps 20 percent off oil filters 20 percent off virtually anything you can fit inside the 99 cent napa reusable bag so tell your buddies there's a bag they just have to check out quality parts helpful people that's napa know-how napa know-how at participating Napa Auto Parts stores while supplies last. Minimum three items. Exclusions apply. Offer ends 10-31-17. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done.